Hi everyone, this podcast is slightly different. It was a recording of a Zoom lecture held by the university, so that's why you can't hear mine or Maureen's voices. Uh, We hope you do find it insightful and that you tune in for the new podcast next week. Thank you. I was saying that I'm I'm no longer claiming expertise. I predicted Hillary Clinton was going to win in 2016 and I predicted that Biden was going to win in a landslide in 2020 and I'm not sure I was right about, well, I definitely wasn't right about Hillary winning and I'm not so sure I was right about any landslides in 2020. So uh, I'm, 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 I'm level pegging with everyone else in the room here, you know, as much as I do. I worked in politics for uh, a couple of years and I quit because I realized I didn't know anything compared to the people that were in the the room. So um, the room where it happens, that's, that's, that's the only place where people are in the know. I guess what I'm going to share with you tonight is um, uh, the human rights abuses that I went through on the night of the election, um, because that's sort of the only human rights stuff that I'm going to be talking about. But if you had to listen to John King on CNN talk endlessly about the same thing over and over again, that we're not going to know any results, that votes tallies are going to change, then you were probably dealing with the same stress and wondering why you bothered staying up and... um, and so what I'll do is I'll walk you through my night, which is the same as everyone else's for the most part, and um, and talk to you a little bit about um, where we are today. There was some breaking news today about uh, the transition of power and, and why that's important. Okay, so this is uh, what the map, the Electoral College map looked like uh, at the, uh, basically when Pacific Standard Time, when California closed uh, the, the, the polls closed in California. And what you can see there is that a lot of the states that we expected to be swing states were still not yet called for either candidate. Um, now, Florida was the first to call and uh, it, went, it went to Trump. And that was largely because the southernmost in, uh, county of Miami-Dade, which is also the most populous county, uh, didn't really turn out for Biden the way it turned out for Hillary. Latinos and particularly Venezuelans and Cubans actually voted for Trump. So Trump picked up 29 electoral votes in Florida and soon after he picked up uh, Ohio's 18 electoral votes. And that that made me feel very uncomfortable. It made me feel like Trump was gonna win in, in the same sort of manner he had in 2016, that we would get this slow trickle of, uh, of votes in Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania that would, that would lead to a Trump victory. And, and, it, and Pennsylvania, which was such a swing state, we knew this was the place where uh, the, the, the White House was going to be won or lost because it's got 20 electoral votes. Uh, it, was, it was polling, Trump was in the lead by 400,000 votes with 70% of the vote in uh, that, that was counted. So it didn't look good. And Georgia, which we thought would be a swing state, was looking like it was going to be a Trump victory. With He had over 100,000 votes in Georgia with 85% reporting. And he was even ahead in Michigan by 100,000 votes with about 70% reporting. So it looked like that so-called blue wall was going to turn red again after Ohio and Florida had turned red. And I and there's all these like harbingers of uh, 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 bell, bell, bellwethers of elections. Ohio is a, is a major bellwether state. Uh, I think historically speaking over the last 150 years, However, Ohio is voted, the rest of the country followed suit. Uh, and there's also a county in Indiana called Vigo County. It's one of the first counties that, um, that reports. However, Vigo County goes for the last 156 years, 
the rest of the country went. And, and, and Ohio went for Trump and Vigo County went for Trump. So all the sort of harbingers of a, tr a Trump election were there. But then as the night unfolded, uh, things got even worse. Um, if, you're, if you were a Biden supporter or if you're a Democrat, uh, if you're a Trump supporter, this was, this was good news. Maine, Susan Collins retained her seat. That was a, a Senate seat that Democrats expected to pick up. Susan Collins was very unpopular after the, uh, the uh, Supreme Court um, confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, and she was expected to lose. And likewise, in Iowa, Joni Ernst was expected to lose. She was fairly unpopular there as well. Susan Collins and Joni Ernst win comfortably in both of those places. And that means that because the Republicans picked up Alabama, they were going to secure the Senate, or at least at, at, at least it was gonna be 50 seats to the Republicans, which meant that at best, if the Democrats won the presidency, they could break a tie. But as you can see, that would come down to two seats in Georgia, which still haven't been decided because the way electoral politics work in Georgia, there has to be a runoff if you don't get 50% of the vote. So those two seats are still outstanding. In fact, this is the, the composition of the Senate as it is now, 48 Democrats, uh, 50 Republicans. And so the best that the Democrats can do is pick up uh, two more seats, uh, but really in all likelihood, Georgia is gonna go for, uh, for probably for the Republican candidates and it'll be a Republican Senate. And so the takeaway for the early hours of the nights was that the polls got it wrong yet again. And, and that uh, just like 2016, Trump and the Republicans were gonna run away with a, uh, an election that was supposed to be a, a Democratic win. You know, all the polls had Joe Biden ahead by seven, 8% in the last couple of days. And I think the poll of polls had him ahead by as much as 9% 9, 9 in, 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 in some polls of polls. So this was another surprise and, um, and I think, you know, as the night dragged on, it was looking more and more uh, like that. But what we didn't account for maybe, although I know some pundits certainly talked about this, was mail-in ballots and how that would factor into the overall count. Because the mail-in ballots represented such a large proportion of voters this year due to the coronavirus, uh, you know, people weren't going to the polls like they were in previous years. The mail-in ballots constituted a greater share of the um, a greater share of the total number of ballots cast, and they were overwhelmingly voting for Biden. Which means that the Democrats decided the, the Democratic voters decided to either vote early in person or mail in their ballots, whereas Republican voters were showing up on election day and voting, and that's what gave Trump this early edge. But as we see in places like Georgia and Pennsylvania, so if you go to Georgia here, these three sites here in Georgia are where the mail-in ballots swung it for Biden in that state. Places like uh, Atlanta here and the suburbs around Atlanta, those votes came in days after the, the polls closed and they were counted by uh, the, the diligent um, uh, vote counters in, in, the, in that state over the course of three or four days. And also down in Columbia and Savannah, these areas uh, are the, the sort of the urban hubs of, of Georgia. They, they came out for Biden in huge numbers. And that actually turned a 100,000 vote deficit into a nearly 20,000 vote surplus for, for Biden. And the, and the same in the case in Pennsylvania. And what's remarkable in Pennsylvania is that counties that were red at the beginning of the night, like Erie County up here, which is a very 
It's sort of very industrial, uh, Rust Belt County, very white, uh, very uh, middle class, uh, very um, sort of uh, working class is, is a sort of British term, I guess. Um, th that actually flipped from a red county to a blue county just through the mail-in ball ballots. So it wasn't just urban centers like down here in Philadelphia that were turning out in these turning out these mail-in ballots. It was also uh, suburban areas like Erie County. Uh, where there's a big a big white population and Scranton up here as well, in in uh, northern Pens northeastern Pens uh, sorry northeastern Pennsylvania, so that it's not just these states either. I mean uh, Wayne County, which is where De uh, Detroit is located in Michigan, had the same experience. Maricopa County in Arizona, which is the home of Phoenix, and Clark County in Nevada, which is the home of Las Vegas. This trend was exactly the same in all of these places. Some of these states, like Nevada, would have mailed in, uh, offered everyone in the state mail-in ballots. But what's what's apparent is even those states that didn't offer everyone mail-in ballots, they were they were taken up. Uh, a lot of uh, what we found is uh, if you if you drill down, a lot of elderly voters and 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 in all likelihood people with underlying conditions decided to post their ballots in. And there's still ballots that have yet to be counted from overseas military personnel who have up to two weeks. To get their ballots in after election day, um, so that you know, not, not that that's going to change the numbers anything dramatically. Um, and traditionally, those voters are, are usually more Republican-leaning voters. But but what it means is is that this year, more than any other year, the mail-in ballots had a disproportionate effect on our perception of who won the election on the night. And, um, and so, yeah, of course we know Joe Biden was elected 46th president. Uh, as I've already said, the Senate's also up for grabs. I mentioned that Georgia will, uh, will have a runoff election in the first week of January, and uh, there'll be two candidates running off for each of the Senate races. And uh, whoever wins in that runoff will really decide the, uh, who controls the Senate. If the Democrats can pick up those two seats, which seems like a big ask for Democrats, if they can pick up those two seats, they would be in control of the Senate because Kamala Harris would cast the deciding vote as vice president. Uh, but if the if the Republicans are to win even one of those seats, it means that the Senate will be Republican and will be left with a divided government again. Although what we're already seeing from uh, Republican senators is a willingness, at least from some of them, to work with the Biden administration to appoint uh, people to the cabinet, which is something that we didn't have when Trump came to office in, in 2017. But of course, the big story remains uh, Donald Trump and his decision to uh, not concede or to uh, not recognize the official results, because they are now official. These results have been certified by, uh, by, by the states. And of course, he's been tweeting and I love that uh, his tweets now come with this uh, disclaimer about election, you know, this, the, the claim about the election fraud is a disputed claim now because I'm sure that's driving him nuts in the White House. He hasn't been seen a whole lot. He came out on uh, November 11th for a public event at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier to lay a wreath on Veterans Day. And he made a speech a, a couple of days ago, I think it was Friday last week, uh, but other than that, he's been kind of missing in action. He hasn't been making public appearances. He's been intermittently meeting with cabinet members. 
but he hasn't been doing, uh, and he didn't show up to the G20 uh, climate meeting this week. So there's a number of things that he's not actually, uh, he's not actually been engaging in other than tweeting or ringing in to Fox and Friends, you know, that, that, and, and spreading wild conspiracy theories of, of voter fraud. And it's, it's, it's had the desired effect. His supporters have come out, um, in some cases, uh, at polling centers um, and, and areas like Wayne County in Detroit and Michigan to protest the results. I mean, this has been sort of short-lived though as well. The Stop the Steal movement, if you can call it that, uh, has been has been has fizzled out, and it's because what I was explaining to you before about the mail-in ballots and the widespread nature of how the mail-in balloting worked across various states. Uh, this wasn't a, a you know like a contested election like it was in 2000, where you know there was an issue over uh, one state and uh, and one set of ballots. This was this was something that Trump was claiming across six or seven states that there was a, a conspiracy to 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 uh, to keep him from winning the election. And it, I mean, the comical nature of this is also that his legal team hasn't really been able to mount a, um, a realistic uh, challenge to the election results. So Rudy Giuliani has been, uh, I, what I can only say is, is embarrassing. Um, and this is someone who, you know, grew up in New Jersey, me, I grew up in New Jersey. Um, I, I saw New York get transformed under Rudy Giuliani to see, and, and you know, and he, he stopped the mob, the organized crime in, in, in New York in a way that is, you know, certainly worth applauding. But since then, he's turned into an almost comic version of himself. And this, um, you know, the, the, the image of him here in front of the uh, Four Seasons Industrial Landscaping uh, store is like, I mean, this is a, this is a, a final act comedy here. I mean, this is really the, the last gasp of a campaign that has lost touch with reality. So the legal claims that Giuliani and the legal team that, that Trump amassed here, uh, they, they've lost in Pennsylvania. The case was thrown out. Their case in Georgia is, is teetering, but, you know, effectively all but over. Uh, and all the other cases hinge on how close observers got to ballots or, or how much observation Republican observers were allowed. And the reality is that in, in almost every county, there's no case of uh, Republican observers being pushed out or of ballots uh, that didn't have signatures being processed. You know, this is just, it's, it's, it's a farce. Um, but, but it remains, a, you know, a sort of a, a palpable narrative that many Americans are subscribing to, in part because there are, you know, leading figures like Rudy Giuliani or Mike Pompeo, who's, who said that a peaceful transfer to a second Trump administration would be would be happening. I mean, these are these are leading uh, figures in the government making these cases. So it's still it's still a bit um, worrying. Meanwhile, the Biden team is uh, plowing along, and I think given that Darren has said that um, we're going to talk a little bit about foreign policy, I thought I'd say that it's it's fascinating that Joe Biden has decided to name his national security team which includes the uh, expected nomination of National Security Advisor, United Nations Ambassador, and of course, Anthony Blinken, who is um, who's gonna become Secretary of State. Uh, he's announced these picks before he's announced any others, including Treasury Secretary or, or even a coronavirus czar. And he, I think what's interesting too is that he nominated John Kerry to be climate czar today, which is, it's clear that what uh, Biden plans to do is to reinstate America at the uh, at the center of the Paris climate um, 
Accords, uh, which means that the United States will actually, you know, they, they just came out of the, the Paris Accords. They'll be going right back in nearly two months later. Uh, and it's interesting, of course, I think for, for British uh, people to note that Antony Blinken is, uh, has had some unkind words for Brexit tears and for Brexit as a, as a process, and that uh, will undoubtedly factor into some uh, British foreign policy, I suspect, as well. But just to say, finally, uh, the news that came out today was that the General Services Administration has officially uh, allowed the Biden team to take over some of the appropriations for the transfer of power and to begin getting security briefings and all sorts of other access to government uh, documents, agencies, and personnel over, over the next couple of months. So the transition is now well and truly um, underway. Yeah, so a runoff is a, uh, the elections in Georgia, they operate where every candidate can enter the race. Uh, so whether you're Democrat, Republican, or Independent, Green Party, all of those candidates enter the race. And it's much the same way the French presidential elections work. You know, you have all the candidates there. If one of the candidates gets 50% plus one vote, that, that is a majority, and they're elected. But as is the case in Georgia, you had multiple Democrats and Republicans running at the same time. No candidate got 50% of the vote, although Purdue, the sitting uh, Georgia Republican, did come very close. Uh, but because no one got 50% of the vote, uh, they have to have a runoff election where the, just two candidates run off against each other, and therefore one of them will inevitably get a majority. It's a democratic process whereby the state is committed to a majority of the, 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 the polity electing their representatives, whereas um, some states, a plurality, or indeed in the case of the presidency, a plurality can win an election. In Georgia, you can't win an election with a plurality. I think Louisiana might be the same as well, and uh, I'm certain that the French presidential elections are the same too. Um, in terms of the, the Senate and what, the, what that means, in, I guess, for a divided government, is that, um, well, I mean, it's, I think it's divided government is something that the likes of Wall Street are excited about. And I say that because um, business people are gen generally content with the Trump tax cuts. And they are also excited about the idea of a Biden fiscal policy that, uh, that injects capital into the American economy, particularly around infrastructure, and, and other support for uh, um, businesses that have been affected by the coronavirus. So businesses at the moment is quite excited because it, a divided government would mean that the Senate would block Biden from uh, bringing in sweeping tax changes that might, um, might, might reverse the Trump tax cuts. Uh, but they also think that Biden and the Senate are gonna pass a fiscal stimulus bill that is perhaps more uh, robust than what the Biden administration was, was sorry, what, the, what a Trump administration would have proposed. And, and so I think, but, but on the flip side of that, I think what we're, what we're seeing is, is that the election of 2020 was not a landslide victory for Biden. It was not a, a repudiation of Trump. It was something in, in between. I mean, 6 million people voted, 6 million more people voted for Biden rather than Trump. But, but Trump, turned out the electorate, not Biden, right? If you hated Trump, you came out to vote. If you loved Trump, you came out to vote. 
And we're talking about an election where 65% of the electorate turned out. That is heads and tails above any election in my lifetime. I think you're looking at 1908 or something like that. Uh, and women did, couldn't even vote back then. So, I mean, we're talking about a huge proportion of the electorate coming out to vote. And it's because of Trump that they're coming out to vote. So whether you love him or you hate him, I don't think you can see, uh, I think we can, we can honestly say to ourselves that Trump is probably one of the most important politicians of the 21st century, if not the most important in American politics. And so regardless of which way the Senate goes, I think the election can be summed up as a sort of halfway house. People that couldn't stomach Trump either on the Republican side probably voted for Biden because he was a moderate and a, and a centrist. But ultimately, Trump turned out more voters on his side than he did in 2016, which is hardly a repudiation of his, his policies or his presidency. Um, might ask a kind of a fairly obvious question, I suppose. Um, what, what now for Trump do you think, Mike, in this sense? Because options are running out, as you say, at, uh, at state level. I mean, is there any recourse, as he keeps claiming, to the, the Trump-dominated Supreme Court? Um, and or is there, do you think, a slow prep for a Trump takeover in, in the next time, you know, preparing for, for the next swing, um, either Trump himself or one of the Trump team? Um, or even could this be a split in the GOP? I mean, we've seen anger thrown in Georgia by Trump supporters uh, at the Republican Party. Uh, so the, the consequences are quite extreme. Yeah, so let me take each one of them, because that's really three questions in one. So let me start with the, the question about the Supreme Court and whether this is, I mean, there's been some speculation that um, uh, this has all been a distraction in order to get the, the election to the Supreme Court. And there's even been some constitutional discussion about how electoral college members are picked by state. Um, so the Electoral College is such a weird uh, uh, thing. And trying to explain that to people that aren't familiar with revolutionary era American politics, you know, it doesn't make sense. It certainly doesn't make sense to 21st century people uh, uh, that, that aren't, you know, au fait with American politics. So let me just say this, that the Electoral College all the time has these things called rogue electors, people that vote for, um, vote for a candidate they're not supposed to. So if New Jersey, for example, where, where, where I'm a resident, where if, if there are 15 electoral voters, they, they, they voted for Biden, right? The state did, but the 15 electoral voters, one of them could diverge and say, I wanna vote for Trump and that's possible. And so the electoral process isn't really over till December 22nd when the college meets and certifies through the, the process of voting, delegates voting, that Joe Biden is the next president. And I have every faith that that will happen. But what the president has been proposing is that state legislatures actually nominate the, the delegates and that they're entitled to pick whoever they want regard, regardless of who won the election in that state. And in theory, that means that, you know, states where the legislature is Republican, but voted Democrat, uh, they, they could pick a, a slate of Republican delegates to go to the electoral college. So, that's still up in the air, and there's been speculation that uh, a lot of the, the talk about um, the, 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 the way the ballots were counted and the mail-in ballots and, and uh, what, what's legitimate and what's le not legitimate was all framing a, a constitutional battle at the Supreme Court. 
but I think that's probably that's probably past now. I think that the threat of that is is gone. Like I said, because this happened across so many different states, um, you know, the processes actually are different in a lot of those states. That Trump doesn't have much of a of a case on a on a on a federal level. So I think that's probably not going to happen. In terms of 2024, um, yeah, it's all to play for. I mean, um, Trump will be roughly the same age as Joe Biden is now if he ran in 2024. So we could have another uh, elderly gentleman, uh, you know, in the White House again for another another term. It's possible. Um, there's speculation that Newsmax is going to turn into Trump TV, and that was something that I know Trump had said that he had always wanted to do. Uh, he expected to lose in 2016, and and what he was going to do after that was to start a cable news network. Um, and I think probably his dissatisfaction with Fox News is spurring some thought um, into that possibility. And in, I suppose in terms of the Republicans and will there be a split, I, I mean, it's it, the Republican Party is remarkable in how they uh, remain united. And in some ways, they're very similar to the Conservative Party in the UK in that regard. They don't have the same uh, uh, factionalism when it comes to winning, at least anyway. Now, when they lose, that's when things start to get a bit hairy and you see leadership um, uh, struggles. And we will see that in the next year, there will be, um, whether there's a split or not, uh, there will be a struggle to, for the soul of the Republican Party, just like there was for the soul of the Democratic Party when, when they lost in 2016. And, uh, and whether, that, whether that becomes uh, a sort of, uh, whether Trump continues to keep his finger on the levers of power in the party is possible, but it's also possible that one of his accolades could, or, or maybe someone completely different. But um, I wanted to ask, so much of my night on election night was spent refreshing the New York Times um, probability meters for Georgia, Arizona, and I believe the other state was, um, it was Wisconsin or Michigan. And um, I was just curious if you could explain a little bit about, I remember watching Georgia tip toward Biden and then suddenly it went just completely toward Trump and saying a Trump win was probable when everyone was thinking that by, uh, Georgia could turn blue. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about how that sort of, um, how it works basically, like how, how, how do they even calculate this? Yeah, it's a good question, and I'll be honest, it's not the it's not the first time I've been asked about how that happens. So the CNN, for example, or the New York Times or any of these news outlets, they get a list of the number of uh, voters that are in 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 a county, even within a state. So it's it's a little bit micro in the sense that you know they know how many voters are in the U.S., but they also can drill down a state level and county level then as well. So when it comes to reporting, they estimate the total um, uh, counted ballots based on the total number of people that are eligible to vote in that county. And then what would happen is, is that the, the county clerks, which is a job that is uh, an elected position in each county, they're responsible for reporting the number of total votes that they've collected. So what CNN can do, or New York Times, or whatever news outlet, they can count the number of people that they expect are going to come in from an existing county. So take Wayne County in Michigan, which is where Detroit is, really urban, big urban uh, county, <clears throat> something like uh, five or six hundred thousand voters. Uh, they they turn out on the night. Uh, uh, let's say there's a total of four hundred thousand that wind up voting. They make their calculations based on on that. 
And then, and then they have to make a separate calculation before they call the election. So, you know, once the numbers get to a point where Trump or Biden can't flip that county, they, they color the county um, for, for, the, for the candidate who wins, but they still have to tally all the other counties. And because some, some are, are tiny, you know, some of those counties in Nevada, they're huge. No one lives there. They have like, you know, maybe 5,000 people voting you know, that's not going to swing the state. So what we were waiting for on election night was those big counties, uh, the ones around Atlanta, uh, the ones around Detroit, the ones around Clark County in, in Nevada, where Las Vegas is. And it was hard to tell how they were going to go because there's some counties, for example, like Maricopa County in Arizona that voted for Trump in 2016, but it voted for Biden like 60% to 40%. Uh, in 2020. So it was a complete flip. And, and we, we didn't have data to show the exact number that, that the turnout was going to be for Maricopa, because th th that county doesn't give you that data. So while Clark County gives you some data, Maricopa doesn't give you some data. Uh, and, and all the states are so different that it means that, and you're dealing with so many different people, the news outlets were, I think, struggling to, to get that all organized into a coherent message. And on top of all that as well, um, you know, you, I mean, this is another thing that uh, people ask me a lot about is how can voting in Maricopa County be different than Clark County? And it's a good question. Like nowadays, why don't we have a single federal standard for voting? Uh, but we don't. And that's probably why the news outlets were so finding it so difficult. Stuff there. There have been many different analyses in media about why so many people apparently do not consider Trump's lies and dishonesty, etc., being an issue. It would be interesting to hear your view. Also, do you think it would be possible to convince that stop the Steelers? Um, sorry, as a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, I don't want that to be misinterpreted. <laughs> to stop the Steelers, that there uh, has been no or little election fraud. By the way, I'm also a Yankees fan, so I'm with you on that one. Um, <laughs> uh, I.e., not more than usual. So, okay, so how do you, how do you convince people that the world is flat? I mean, how do you convince them that the world is round? I mean, we're at a stage now where I think post-truth is, uh, is real. And um, we, we, we know about it in, uh, in British politics because, you know, there are, um, there, there are as many post-truth post issues in, in the UK as there are in the US. Um, I think it's just a really strange time to be interested in politics, and uh, and and to deal with you know with people like Trump who who have a, a great gift for gaslighting, um, and so I'm not surprised in the United States that it's like this. I mean, although it's probably you know I guess by a number of statistics the most affluent country in the world, it is also in many regards one of the least educated. You know, some places in America, the literacy rates are, you know, um, akin to underdeveloped countries. Um, so, yeah, there, there, there are people that don't tune in to John King all night long to hear what's going on. Uh, and, they, and they just, they, they tune into a different set of, um, of media or they don't tune into the media at all. I mean, remember, some people are so convinced that they will go into a pizza restaurant with a loaded weapon and try and find a pedophile ring. I mean, that's how crazy some of this is. Um, so I don't, I don't know how that changes. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a media, uh, media studies person, but I don't know how that changes. But spin has gotten to the point now where we are certainly post-truth. 
the stop the, the steal thing is interesting because it it's kind of over. Um, even those people that are hardcore believers that the election was stolen, uh, they're they're fewer than than you might expect. Uh, they might just be a bit louder. Uh, I was curious to your thoughts on um, whether there's been a, a kind of the influence of significant democratic shifts in the southern states. Uh, there was I can't remember who's made the comment that that the Republicans might be going down a demographic cul-de-sac because the increase in the urbanization and diversity in the in some of the major cities in the southern states. Mm. Uh, just in your view on whether that's a kind of a long-term problem you see for the Republicans or because of the Trump turnout, it's, it's not such a big issue. Yeah, I think, well, for, first of all, on that last point that you made, that's really salient. You know, it is, this election is about the Trump turnout. So when Trump's not there, what does that mean for the Republicans? Um, but but you're right. I mean, there's been a big shift and it has been in, in the South, but it's also been in the Southwest as well. Um, so states like Colorado, Arizona and New Mexico would have voted Republican or would have been very, uh, very swing uh, in years past. But they are now, uh, I mean, Arizona, this is the first time they voted for a Democrat since Bill Clinton in 1992. And, uh, and it looks like places like Phoenix, Tucson, uh, those places are now voting strongly Democrat. Uh, it doesn't help when Donald Trump, um, you know, talks so disparagingly about John McCain, who was a senator for 30 odd years in Arizona, and Jeff Flake, who was also a senator in Arizona. He really uh, shot himself in the foot, I think, uh, doing that. But interestingly, uh, the, the, the biggest demographic that is the one that is most up for grabs are Latino voters. And Democrats have badly let themselves down by considering this a monolithic block in the election. They have treated Venezuelans, Cubans, Ecuadorians, Mexicans as the same uh, group of people. <clears throat> Whereas, you know, Mexicans in Arizona have very little in common with Cubans in Florida. You know, not only do they have very little in common uh, geographically, but their 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 issues are are so different. I mean, Miami-Dade. Uh, didn't vote for Biden, basically, basically because Trump was able to tell them that uh, there were socialists in the Democratic Party. I mean, these are these are Castro's foes, same as the Venezuelans in Miami-Dade, who are uh, you know uh, Maduro's and um, uh, Chavez's foes. These are people that left those places and are staunchly anti-communist. Meanwhile, the Mexicans in Arizona they don't feel that way about socialism at all. That that ad that ran in Florida would have almost no effect in Arizona. And the problem with the Democrats is that they are they are talking to Latinos as if they are one group, and they need to start um, being you know they're in other words you could you could treat African American communities like that because largely the problems of African American communities in New York are the same as they are in California, but that's not the case for Latinos. So I think that for me is the demographic to really keep your eye out for in 2024 and into the into the future because even more so than the African-American community, that demographic is only getting larger and larger. What do you think about the Dominion voting machines? I mean, that Texas, for instance, rejected the machine thrice in its state prior to the election. Uh, and also the fact that there was a presentation to Congress also about the, uh, the porousness of its security system to flip or flop votes, and it can be easily manipulated. Do you think it's a true claim or conspiracy? Yeah, good question. So, I mean, obviously the Dominion voting machines are all over the news, but this is again one of those stories that is so overhyped. I mean, as far as I can tell, what happened with Dominion voting machines is that when you inserted a memory card, it corrupted the file. And when you corrupt the file, it, it swapped the votes. 
So what happens is, is that the election officials go to the machine, they look at the machine, they realize that the votes have been counted incorrectly, they put in a new memory card, and the votes are tallied correctly. So this isn't really a, it's, it's a problem, but it's, it's, it's just a glitch. I mean, this is something that, you know, we still need humans to have a hand in. I suppose what's great about this election is, especially with some commentators coming out say it's, saying it's been the most secure, is that hand ballots are still the most trustworthy way to run an election because you have a paper trail that can be accounted for. I mean, Georgia completed in the course of a week a hand ballot recount. Um, so without paper, we wouldn't have been able to do that. And, and it was the, you know, the, the paper ballots that really gave us that sense of security. There's still problems with electronic voting, but I think largely they're overblown and the Dominion voting machines are getting a lot of bad press, largely because there's a small glitch and any small glitch makes it seem like it's, uh, you know, it's more problematic than it is. At the end of the day, every Dominion machine was checked by a human uh, a poll uh, employee or, or volunteer. And so none of them were just uh, you know, taken for granted and, and entered into the, um, the total count without human, uh, a human checking it. Do you think that following Trump, the media and other commentators will be hard enough on the Biden administration? Um, might they give him too much of a free ride after the difficulties of the Trump term? It's an interesting question. And that's a good question. I mean, I could, I could almost ask this of everyone, I suppose. How happy or delighted or pleased are we going to be when we don't have to read American political news every day? Um, how much better is it going to be for our, um, our mental health that we don't have to read about traumas in the White House or be, uh, emanating from the White House? Uh, you know, I think it's probably a good thing if commentators start to focus on things other than uh, American politics, dramatizing American politics has been a bad thing for the country overall. It's led to more division than unity. Um, but will they give Biden a free ride? I doubt that. I mean, I very much doubt that Fox News overnight is going to turn into, um, you know, a, a real fan of the Democrats or or of the Biden administration. I think that they'll be as ready to to jump on news stories that seem to contradict a conservative ideology, and. Um, and I think that there's other stations out there like CNN and MSNBC that still need to entertain their viewers. And, and at the end of the day, the, the news media has turned into entertainment and they'll be as eager, I think, to, uh, to dramatize the, the, the White House and Biden's administration as they were for Trump. Hi again. Um, just one more question, uh, this time more related to media as well. So um, I think what we've seen over the course of Trump's presidency is that he very much created this narrative that he is the only source of reliable news. You know, no one else, you can't trust anyone else because they're fake news and they're not going to give you the real story. And I think it's like, it's pretty interesting and genius in a way because now anyone who supports him will only believe him. So he can pretty much say whatever he wants. I think Alex Jones kind of did that as well. A lot of conservative commentators really, but he's gotten away with a lot due to this. And now that Biden is the president elect, he I think has a massive job to do in terms of reversing this narrative, but how does he even begin to do that, especially with social media increasing the reach of so much fake news as well. Yeah, that's a good point. I think yeah, following on from from Linda's point as well, you know, you're, you're right about um, Trump and the media and the change that's happened. But I do think that we are starting to see what a Biden administration media uh, um, approach looks like. 
Um, you know, what, what you saw after the election was Biden kind of quite calmly taking the podium, saying he's not claiming victory until all the votes are counted. Uh, even now, the transition is quite, you know, it's, it's forward looking. It's based on what um, Biden is setting the narrative. And rather than falling into the trap of trying to disprove Trump and, you know, the, the, the conspiracy theories that, that he's um, espousing, so I think what we're seeing already is a sort of more measured, uh, less reactionary approach to politics. And whether that's that's possible to last, uh, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, what, um, what Republicans did to the Obama presidency by, um, you know, trying to make issues out of things that were, were really not um, as significant as, as I might think they are. Like for example, the Benghazi, you know, the, the, the crisis in Benghazi or, um, or, or you know, uh, Barack Obama's leadership on the world stage, you know, that, that will still probably happen. They're still probably gonna try and make political capital by, by um, blowing up news stories that are capable of uh, working for their, their audience. But I think if the Biden administration keeps on doing what it's doing now, which is driving its own agenda, you know, kind of persisting with the my job is to do, you know, to, to put together a cabinet next, and that's what I'm focused on doing, rather than the the noise uh, that Rudy Giuliani is is generating, uh, then that, that's probably a good thing for the Biden administration. It, it bodes well anyway for his management of journalists and the press. I've got a I've got a gratuitous plug here as well. I've got a book coming out next year called Presidents and Prime Ministers, uh, which we just sent the manuscript off last week, and it was because we we didn't know what was going to happen with the election, and you know I mean the 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 pick of Anthony Blinken for Secretary of State is it's got to be a kick in the stomach, and may, maybe has something to do with Dominic Cummings leaving, and uh, who knows maybe a very thin trade deal at the end of this week. So I was going to ask a question about the U.S. election because, well, my biggest concern about the U.S. election was how would Joe Biden, as the president-elect and going to be the future president, be able to unite a country that is split? Because if you look at the votes, a large, percent of, a large portion of people did vote for Donald Trump. So would he be able to unite the, the country as previous presidents have done? Because Trump has been a major catalyst in, pre in presenting so many issues that many politicians have been wanting to uh, speak about over the years. And he has turned the Republican Party from being somewhat, you know, complacent into be more aggressive and adversarial, which is creating more polarization in the US. So as a president for the next, the next four years, how would he be able to, you know, unite the country. And that's, I think, that's one of the biggest uh, questions and hurdles that he would face as the president in the next four years. That's yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and that's um, what but I'm, I'm, um, I'm a historian. So I think um, what, what, I, what I look to is the, the history of the United States. And I don't think the United States has ever been unified. And I don't think Donald Trump is the most divisive president either. Abraham Lincoln, when he was elected in 1860, seven states decided to actually leave the country. So, I mean, for me, Abraham Lincoln is the most divisive president. He's also the most successful in many ways too, and the most revered, but um, no other president faced, you know, that sort of um, revolt. And in all honesty, you know, I think uh, the first time 
the first, I can't think of a presidency that hasn't been divisive. I mean, when Ronald Reagan, who's kind of revered as the last unifier in chief, when Ronald Reagan entered the White House, his approval rating was lower than the number of votes he won in, in, in the 1980 election. You know, so he wasn't he wasn't outstandingly popular, even though, you know, we have this sort of impression that he was. George George H.W. Bush was voted out of power. Bill Clinton was impeached. George W. Bush was as divisive as they come. And Barack Obama was, too. So it's been it's been 30, 40 years of, you know, really divisive American politics. I don't think Joe Biden's going to change any of that. And uh I don't know. I don't know. Has the United States ever been really been a, a united country? It's been a cluster of states, a cluster of demographics. You know, groups that feel really, um, really ostracized from other groups. I mean, certainly, you know, we can see that in you know some African American communities and some of the protests at police brutality over the, the last few years. But we, we've also seen it from uh, well, from all sorts of communities. Um, it's not a united place. It's really. Um, it's really a mess. Hey, <laughs> Francesca. Yeah. Hi. Hi. I am. I have a couple of questions, actually. Um, um, so the first would be, um, I would be interested in in knowing your opinion about how movement, like organized paramilitary movements or um, white supremacist movements, are going to evolve in the next four years. So what is what kind of trajectory can we expect in that regard? Are they going to ex exacerbate their discourse around white supremacy? Are they going to fight back every sort of attempt from the Biden administration to change the race relationships in the US? Or Because um, we all know that it's not um, the Biden presidency will not be an extremely progressive presidency, but they can still push back in that regard. And I was also wondering, because of, of many of the conversations about the, the type of senators and uh, uh, representatives to the House of Representatives that have been elected, and uh, also the presence of Kamala Harris um, as the vice president, uh, whether it could be possible to see uh, this presidency as a form of transition towards an, a newer generation of politicians. So sort of, almost seeing Biden as uh, sort of moving towards like helping this transition to happen in a way because of his uh, sort of, I would say more or less sort of, he's more or less, it's not a very strong candidate in the sense he doesn't have a lot of charisma. So could we think about the fact that Biden could potentially be the perfect president to switch or to enable a change of leadership also in the, in the Democratic Party? So these are my two questions. Thank They're you. They're good. They're good questions. But remember, Joe Biden was the guy the Onion put on the, the the cover of their you know magazine with his shirt off on top of a Camaro, which is a sports car in the states. He's you know he's he's very charismatic for some people. Some people really like Joe Biden. Um, your question on white supremacists. Um, they are the greatest threat to American internal security right now, and they have been probably uh, for the last 40, 50 years. And that's not me saying that, that's the director of the FBI who just a couple weeks ago said that white supremacist organizations are the greatest threat to American security. And we've known that because white supremacist groups blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City. 
You know, they, they were behind the Ruby Ridge massacres. They were behind, uh, you know, a, a lot of, um, you know, you know, very public and, and very, you know, well-detailed um, conflicts in the U.S. So, and they're, they're, of course, also behind some of the most recent protests, uh, like the, the, the disaster in Charlottesville that led to a fatality. So, uh, you know, but white supremacy has been a major problem. White supremacists and paramilitaries have been a problem, you know, dating back to the end of the Civil War. Um, you know, there's a deep, deep wound in America over race that uh, no administration is going to be able to solve in four years' time. Uh, it's been, uh, what has it been, 150 years since the end of the Civil War, and the issues of slavery still plague the United States. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's hard to see how white supremacy will go away. I don't expect it will. And I think given the FBI director's statement last week that the U.S. government takes it as seriously as, um, you know, as your question suggests it should. No, my question. Sorry if I interrupt. My question was more to ha has to, had more to do with whether they're going to seize this opportunity that Biden was elected together with uh, the first uh, African American and Asian uh, female vice president to actually ramp up their actions, and we're going to see they're going to be four difficult years in terms of the polarization and the, the exploitation of these you know divisive narratives by white supremacists that are going to jump on the opportunity. So, sorry if I, you know. When you say uh, jump on the opportunity, though, you know th that's not always been successful. I mean, you know, there was there was Waco, Texas. There was Ruby Ridge in Wyoming. Uh, I think Wyoming or maybe Colorado. But you know, you know, these were these were big disasters for the Clinton administration. You know, and you know, it's when the United States was heavy-handed with white supremacists. The the better tactic that the FBI has taken with the white supremacist groups is to smoke them out with. Um, you know, with basically people that are um, uh, spies within the organizations to, to, to out them in, in other ways rather than to go in in a sort of uh, heavy-handed fashion. It's only ended badly. It's actually only fueled the interest in white supremacist groups by, uh, you know, folks that are, you know, uh, largely, you know, young people who see this on TV and and, and, have, and have joined white supremacist groups as a result. So what I'm saying to you is I think the government takes it very seriously, but I don't think they're going to, quote, jump on the issue because jumping on it is only likely to add fuel to the fire. Um, they're, they're going to handle it like they always have, as quietly as possible in order to try and, you know, identify what groups are a real threat and which groups are just, you know, racist. I mean, you know, the KKK isn't, isn't currently a paramilitary group. It still exists. It still has propaganda, but it's not. It's not you know actively um, training people for you know hand-to-hand -hand combat on on the streets. There are other white supremacist groups and neo-Nazi groups that are doing that though. So you have to weigh up which ones are a threat, I think, and uh, and work that way. In terms of you asked about a new generation of uh, of American leaders, I sure hope so because. Joe Biden is 78 years old. I mean, hopefully there's no more baby boomers that want to be president. You know, maybe there's a Gen Xer out there. I know our generation is meant to be uh, lazy and lethargic, but hopefully there's someone that's a post baby boomer that wants to be president or Senate majority leader sometime soon. Can I take this opportunity as we approach half past to thank everybody for participating and for your questions, for your attendance, for your support. I know people have come and gone. 
and obviously that's great. Um, thank you, everybody. Thank you so much to Alison for chipping in. As thank you, brilliant to Mike for all of that fantastic um, uh, journey that you took us through election night and then all the consequences and all of these complex um, implications.